Well, it is Good Friday, and it is good to have you all here. I am Pastor Troy Martin. I love this time each year because we get a few churches to come together and worship together. And in an age like ours and in a state like ours, oh, that's just a nice, godly sweetness. So it's good to be with you all. I have to say, uh, you'll forgive my small Puritanism, but I always think of myself down there in Judea and coming up to here in Galilee with you all since I'm South County. I'm, I'm glad, too, we're starting about 10 minutes late. I always say it's because we're a church made of old surfers that we can never start on time, but it seems like it's you and conservative Felton, too. You have this problem. So, Well, it's good to have you all, and uh, we are about to focus on the core of the whole Christian message. Paul said that he longed and, and promised himself to teach nothing but Christ and him crucified. And we get a look at that today, and we get to have that preached today. So... As we get ready for it, would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, this Good Friday. And pray now, Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that Christ has done for us. Father, would you work through the sermon, would you work through the sacraments to stir our hearts to love and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. all stand and worship God by singing in Christ alone. Was laid here in the 
his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on Bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my death. Power of hell, no scheme of man can ever block me from his hands till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. My name is Chad. I'm a director of students at Felton Bible Church. Today I'm going to be giving the reading on Isaiah 52, 13 through uh, 53, 12. Read it with me. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a young root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they gave his grave the wick- with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering of guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out with his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And we're going to sing together, Man of Sorrows, in response to the reading of God's word. Shame. 
Mark 15, 16 through 39 with me. The soldiers led him away inside the place, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and splitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled by a a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, a father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. 
and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right side and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their, hand, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the standardbys hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down, uh, will, will, will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who had stood facing him saw, uh, facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. The word of God itself proclaims the gospel to us, doesn't it? As Chad read these two passages, this one from Mark, which is a historical record and an accounting and narrative of the thing that actually happened on that Friday 2,000 years ago when they nailed Jesus to that cross and spilled his blood. And the passage that he read from Isaiah 52 and 53 is not a historical accounting, it is a prophetic anticipation and explanation and declaration of why. Why did that have to happen? Why did the God-man come and live a life of perfect righteousness and get nailed to a Roman cross? Because all we, like sheep, had gone astray. Because all of us had turned everyone to his own way. Instead of trusting God, instead of honoring God, instead of obeying God, instead of in humility serving the God who made us in his image and for his glory, we all said with Adam and Eve, we will do it our way. We all let our own pride determine for us which master we would serve, and it was not the God who made us. It was our own desires. The wages of that sin 
The Bible clearly proclaims death, everlasting separation from God, alienation from God, enmity with God, and an eternity of suffering the righteous judgment of God is what all sin earns because all sin is an infinite offense against the God who is eternally holy, holy, holy. And that was all of us. And yet Jesus came. This servant of the Lord came in order to take it for us, in order to be oppressed for us, in order to be afflicted instead of us, in order to be crushed by God so that we wouldn't have to be in order that we might be accounted righteous even though we're not because he was accounted sinful even though he's not so that we could be forgiven and we could be justified in him alone. The scriptures clearly proclaim all of this. All we have to do today is come and read as Chad did the word of God and it shouts the gospel to us. Jesus paid it all. And by his wounds we have been healed. And today, all I want to do with you in the brief time that we have is focus together on one verse in the Mark narrative that we looked at just a minute ago. Mark chapter 15. And in that single verse, which is verse 35, 34, excuse me. I want to focus just on one word, mostly, that Jesus, right before he took his last breath and died there on that cross at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon by our reckoning of time, that one word that he proclaimed. Mark records it like this, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, forsaken me? And today, I just want to think with you about that statement of Jesus and that word forsaken that he cried out there on the cross. And I want to suggest to you that everything that Jesus suffered that day as they took him, stripped him of his clothes, as they flogged him, with Roman whips, which were straps of leather embedded with pieces of sharp stone and iron. And as they ripped the flesh from him, as they pressed the crown of thorns down on him, as they drove long iron spikes through his hands and his feet, as they hung him up there on a cross so that his own body weight pulled the air out of his lungs. And as he struggled and suffered and bled and died, the thing that caused him the most agony by far was this forsaking that he endured. God forsook him on the cross. What does that mean? Jesus is the incarnate God. Jesus is the second person of the divine eternal trinity in human flesh. All the fullness of deity in bodily form. Jesus is equal in essence and substance with the Father and the Holy Spirit in every way, eternally and unchangeably. And he cries out there to the Father on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What in the world does it mean that God forsook God? 
on the cross. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce wrote a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus, and he surveys in that book 70 tough statements that Jesus makes all throughout the Gospels that are tough for us to understand, and, 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 and Bruce explains them and helps us make sense of them. And in the last chapter of that book, chapter 70, he takes a look at these words, Jesus' words here in Mark 15, 34. Why have you forsaken me? And the first thing that F.F. Bruce says about that hard saying of Jesus is, this is the hardest one of them all. This is the hardest of all the hard sayings for us to understand. Stories told of, of Martin Luther translating the, the Bible from its original Greek, the New Testament from its original Greek into the German, and, and that after studying this single verse for days, he cried out, God forsaken by God, how can that be? That's a good question. How can it be that God forsook God on the cross. The word forsaken there in verse 26 means to abandon someone. It means to desert someone. It means to leave someone behind, to turn your back on them and to go the other way and to leave them there and to be without them and leave them without you, to leave someone alone and helpless. How can it be that God the Father did that to God the Son. And I, I'm not asking, we're not talking about uh, just the, the moral ground of it, right? It's not just a question of how could the Father do that to his own Son. The, the real question is how is it even possible for one person of the divine trinity, of the divine unchanging Godhood to abandon another? How is it even possible for the God who is omniscient, the God who is omnipresent, the God who knows everything comprehensively and infinitely, the God who is in all places at all times, how is it even possible for him to, to forsake, to abandon, to desert his own son, who is eternally God of God, light of light, very God of very God? How can that be? So some people suggest, well, it can't be. It's not possible, they think. So they try to explain these words of Jesus in different kinds of ways. Some of them say that Jesus in his humanness just broke down under all the weight of his physical suffering and, 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 and in a moment of desperation forgot the whole purpose of his crucifixion and was simply crying out to the father something like this why have you left me to endure this physical agony why haven't you stopped this cruelty why haven't you saved me and delivered me from this horror do not believe for a moment that that's what jesus means here that the god man was capable of forgetting the very purpose for which he came don't you buy that for a second. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And we were talking about the, the same person here, the same man here, who had the presence of mind while hanging on that cross to tell his disciple John to care for his mother Mary while he was there bleeding to death. And pulling himself up against those nails for, for every breath. 
We're, we're talking about the same man who prayed for the very centurions, the Romans who drove the nails into his hands and feet. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had the presence of mind and heart to pray while he hung there on the cross. The presence of mind to say to that thief on the cross, surely today you will see me in paradise. Jesus didn't lose focus for an instant on the cross. Jesus didn't misspeak a single word on the cross. Some people say that Jesus wasn't referring to himself being forsaken or separated from the Father on the cross because because these people can't fathom how that's possible. So they say, well, Jesus was speaking as our representative before God and and, and, in identifying with us, he was feeling the fullness of our separation from God and, and reacting to that when he cried out, why have you forsaken me? They say that Jesus' words need to be understood as kind of this, this emotional identification with our alienation from God and separation from God, not not Jesus's separation from the Father. Well, there's just a big problem with that, right? And the big problem, the big glaring problem is that's not what Jesus said, right? He doesn't say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken them? He says, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you deserted me? This is what he's experiencing in this moment before he dies. That God has turned his back on him. And the simple fact is that if we believe that God's word in the Bible is God's word, breathed out, infallible, inerrant, and if we believe that Jesus spoke these words on the cross, we have to accept that he meant what he said. He was expressing anguish. He was expressing an agony that you and I will never experience or identify with or fully understand at having been as tortured as his body was, tortured in his spirit by being forsaken by his heavenly father. It's hard to understand. And what we need to realize is as hard as it is to understand how this could be that God forsook God we have to accept that not only could it have been, but it had to have been. There's no, there's no hope unless this is what happened. There's no gospel. There's no good news unless this is what happened. Unless Jesus was forsaken of God on the cross. Unless he was, there's nothing good about the Friday on which he died. And, and we don't have anything to celebrate today unless Jesus was forsaken. So how do we understand these these things? How do we understand these tough words of Jesus? Part of the, honestly, part of the answer is you'll never fully understand it. There is some measure of incomprehensible mystery in the majesty of God's nature as one essence in three persons, Depths that we will never fully plumb. And as much as that's true, there's, there's mystery necessarily that we've got to live with here when Jesus says that he is the incarnate, eternally begotten son was forsaken by the Father. 
And realize this, that when Jesus said that, that's what happened, that he was abandoned and turned away from and deserted. He, he, he wasn't describing something that had happened in terms of the essence of, of God, the essence of the Trinity. So I heard one person explain it this way also, a person who wrote a very famous book that I'm not going to name today, but I think if you have it on your shelf, you should burn it. And he said, when Jesus said this on the cross, it's the shack. If you have that book, throw it out. The author says this. Sorry, it was published. He says, when the Father forsook the Son on the cross, the Trinity became disjointed and the Godhead was broken. I heard him say it at a lecture he gave right here in Santa Cruz. That is not what Jesus meant. That is blasphemous heresy. It's impossible because God's word clearly teaches that it's impossible for God to change. His nature always remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. By definition, he can't cease to be God. He can't be broken up into pieces. There aren't parts that can be separated. He's one. He's eternal. He's immutable. He's unchanging and unchangeable. The Trinity remained fully intact. That's not even an accurate way of saying it because things that remain intact are things that are made of pieces. God's not made of pieces. But on the cross, relationally, in terms of the person of the Father and the person of the Son, judicially, as the divine person of the Father looked upon the divine person of Jesus, he turned away. Relationally, judicially, because what he saw when he looked upon his only begotten son on that cross caused him to turn his back on Jesus. Why? Because of what we read. Because our iniquities were laid on him. He was covered in my sin. That's why. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 21. Anyone ever asks you if there's a single verse that sums up the gospel for you, I say just give them this one. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ knew no sin in any aspect of of his life in this world. He never thought a sinful thought. He never yielded to a sinful temptation. He never had a sinful attitude. He never said a sinful word. He never did a sinful thing ever. He personified perfect, unblemished holiness. He lived a fully blameless life spotless, impeccable in absolute obedience and righteousness and holiness. So, what did he deserve? His life on this earth deserved nothing short of God's full approval and acceptance because he was perfectly pure and holy. But that's not what he got, right? He didn't get God's approval and get God's acceptance because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. 
That doesn't mean Jesus became actually intrinsically sinful. It means that judicially God accounted our sin to him. The sin I did. The sin I'm guilty of. The sin I do every day was charged to Jesus' account. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My sin. See, this is the only way that God can ever look on us who are actually sinful, who have actually fallen way short of his eternal glory and say, I forgive you. Because he can't overlook the sin because he's just and righteous and he always has to deal with the sin. He can't overlook it. And so he, he, he took it and accounted it to Jesus' account judicially. The debt of our sin was fully paid by another, by Jesus, who bore it on the cross where he was covered with our sin and so forsaken by his father. See, this is the great gospel miracle. And it's made even more miraculous when we realize that not only did God account all my sin to his perfect only begotten son, then he took Jesus' perfect righteousness and holiness and blamelessness and accounted all of it to me. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange of the gospel. Jesus, God, came here in order to be covered with our sin and pay its full price on the cross and then cover us with his own righteousness so that God could say, because Jesus paid the price, you're forgiven. And because you're covered with his righteousness, I call you righteous. I declare you to be holy as I am holy. That's called justification in biblical language. And I accept you, and I approve of you, and I never cannot in Christ alone. That's the gospel. That's why Jesus came, to be made sin for us so that he could pay the price for the wages of sin that is death. So he hung there on that cross. They'd driven those nails into his wrists and his feet at 9 o'clock in the morning, and they raised that cross up, and, and they dropped it into a like a two, three foot hole in the ground so it would stand there. And he hung there. His scourged back rubbing against the roughness of that wood, his scalp torn and bleeding, his hands pierced and his feet pierced. He endured this agony for six straight hours. And again, all of that physical pain, as horrific as it was, paled really in comparison to the infinitely greater anguish of experiencing the forsaking of his father. My God, my God, he's quoting Psalm 22. Why have you forsaken me? No matter what you suffer in this world, no matter what loss you ever endure in this world, no matter how heartrending the pain is in your life, you will never even taste, none of us will, the unsurpassed agony that Jesus felt there. The utter aloneness that Jesus endured on that cross when his father turned his face away. Because there on that cross, the blood that flowed from Jesus' wounds was, was flowing over the sins, my sins, 
your sins, all of our sins that he was covered with. And as the father looked down upon his son, that's what he saw. He saw my sin, all of it, all of it, every thought, every word, every deed in all of its filth and all of its ugliness and wretchedness and unholiness and impurity, it was just covering his only begotten son. And God says in Habakkuk 1.13 that he is of purer eyes than to see evil and he cannot look upon wickedness and so he couldn't look upon his son and he turned his face away and forsook him because of me. Because of me. (laughs) So there with Jesus bleeding and dying on the cross, that's what happened. This is what God's word says. It says it through and through. The, The father turned his back on the crucified son. God forsook God on the cross. Paul, Paul expresses it this way in Galatians 3 and verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The, the curse that was first proclaimed when Adam and Eve first sinned and the whole creation became cursed and started to decay and break down and become subject to death and corruption. Christ redeemed us from that curse. How? By becoming a curse. By becoming subject to decay and corruption and death. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That's what Jesus did. He became a curse for me. Because all my sin was laid on him. And so his father forsook him. And that's that's why Good Friday is good. See? Praise God that Jesus became a curse. Praise God that Jesus bled and died. Praise God that he was forsaken. This is, this is what makes the Christian gospel, the message of the Christian gospel, so absolutely, singularly, utterly unique. Whereas every other religion in the world is proclaiming a message of what I have to do. I haven't done everything right, so I need to start to do everything better. I've done a lot of things wrong, so I have to atone for my sins. I have to make payment. Only the Christian gospel acknowledges there's nothing you can do. You sin against the Holy One. There's nothing you can do to make up that infinite debt. You fail to be holy as the Holy One is holy. There's nothing you can do to climb the eternal rungs of that ladder into His presence and say... Accept me on any merits of your own. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do. There's no hope unless God gives me a redeemer, unless God gives me a rescuer, unless God gives me a savior who does it all for me, who takes all my sin on himself and pays the full price and then gives me his righteousness, not a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that comes from God, Paul says in Philippians. The Christian gospel is singularly unique. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is is such unbelievably good news because because God is of purer eyes than to see evil or look on wickedness. That's who he is as the one who's holy, holy, holy. So he could never possibly have looked upon us with favor and approval and acceptance because we weren't just a little sinful. Even that much is eternally far. Jeremiah says we were all desperately wicked incalculably wicked and if all of our sin remains in our account then God will always and forever forsake us we'll never be in the presence of his goodness and blessing he'll always turn away from us and leave us in that place that's called outer darkness alone to suffer the consequences for our sin against him But instead, Jesus was forsaken and experienced all of that horror and trauma himself for us so that we don't ever, ever, ever have to be forsaken. Jesus was abandoned so that you don't ever have to be abandoned. Jesus was deserted so that you don't ever have to be. Because the good news is that if you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, if your faith is in him and you live by this faith in him, God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. God will never curse you. God will never, ever condemn you or turn his face away from you in contempt and disgust. Because he already did that. As he looked upon his only begotten son who is covered in your sin and in my sin and our sin so that when he looks on us, he sees us covered by Jesus's blood and righteousness as forgiven, as justified, as cleansed. And he says, you belong to me and I love you and I accept you and no one can ever snatch you out of my hand. Because, as Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can possibly be against us? Who can make an accusation stick against the one for whom Jesus died? Praise God for the good news of the forsaken Christ. Amen? So let's pray, and then let's come together to the communion table where we can remember what Jesus did, and where we can not only hear about it with our ears, but we can see what God has given to us to signify it. We can see it with our eyes. We can feel it in our hands. We can smell it. We can taste it. All of our senses can be assaulted with what God has appointed to help us remember the fullness and sufficiency of what his son did for us on that cross. Father God, help us to understand And help us to trust that on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied because on him the fullness of our sin was laid and he bore it all and he paid for it all that we might be free. I pray that every burdened soul in this room this morning that's feeling guilt, that's feeling shame, would taste the fullness and the sufficiency of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ today and know that it means that you will never forsake them if they are in him. 
And I pray, Father, that every single one of us will be so full of gratitude for who it is that Jesus is and what it is that Jesus did. That you will help us be able to look down into the depths of our souls and see the roots of our sin and admit it all and confess it all and turn from it all and hate it as much as you hate it. And hate it because Jesus had to die for it. And that this gratitude and this great love with which we had been loved would teach us and train us to forsake our sin, to turn from it, to abandon it, in order to bring honor and glory to the one who was forsaken on our behalf by you on that cross. And so, Father, as we come to the table, fill us with gratitude, fill us with faith, and feed us and strengthen us and cleanse us and wash us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's really, really good news this afternoon that we struggle to understand what it means to be forsaken by God, because Jesus endured that for us. Praise God that we can't even get down to the depths of it, because if we could, it would mean we'd be experiencing hell. And in Christ Jesus, that's not our reality. We're going to move now towards celebrating the time of the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper is nothing less than the Passover meal of Israel fulfilled by remembering the final Passover lamb who was sacrificed to cover the sins of all God's people for all of time and not just some of their sin, all of their sin. I want to encourage us as we come to this memorial meal to think of this time as a fulfillment not only of Israel's Passover meal, but also in a way as a fulfillment of the cross itself or of the cross event itself. Let me explain what I mean by that. Steve grounded us in that preaching of God's Word on those words that Jesus spoke. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those words of Jesus were the words of his forefather, King David, in Psalm 22. That makes Psalm 22 an incredible window, not just into the fact of the cross, but the experience of the cross and the reality of the cross. Listen to what the singer of Psalm 22 sings at the end of his song. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over all the earth. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. You see, Psalm 22 moves through the suffering of the one whom God forsook to the proclamation of the kingship and the righteousness of God Himself. 
What does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper? He says that in this memorial meal, what we are doing is proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. You see, the Lord's Supper, when every time it's celebrated, it's one aspect of fulfilling this prophecy at the end of Psalm 22 that is a wonderful window into the event that was the cross on which Jesus died. The end of the cross event is is not the cross itself, it's the proclamation of what the cross accomplished. Or better put, it's the proclamation of who Jesus is and what Jesus did on behalf of those who by grace through faith will follow Him. The cross is the proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when we celebrate that cross event in the Lord's Supper, we're saying the same thing. We're celebrating the King who has been crowned with a crown of thorns. As you're a follower, if you're a follower of Jesus this afternoon and you come and participate participate in this Lord's Supper meal, you are giving assent to those words of Psalm 22. You're agreeing with Isaiah 55, verse 11, that God's Word that goes out from His mouth shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish that which He purposes and shall succeed in the thing for which He sends it. Brothers and sisters, this thing called the Lord's Supper is a high calling. And so we don't come to it flippantly. On that note, if you're here this afternoon and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ by faith, then God bless you for being here. You are most welcome. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit, even now, through what Steve has preached and through what you've heard sung and with what we're about to do in the Lord's Supper, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would convict your heart of your sin and your need for a Savior and then point you right at Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, then let me exhort you, please don't participate in this meal. Just let the elements pass you by. It's better for your soul to forego this and wonder at it as you see it unfold than to fraudulently enter into something that isn't yours yet. Now I'm going to pray here in just a moment and then it will be uh, the privilege of four of the men to serve us the elements this afternoon. And we're going to start with the bread and as they serve, we'll sing together. When you receive the bread, just hold it. And pause. And after everyone's been served, then we'll eat together. And then we'll do the same thing with the juice. Would you bow with me in prayer? And as I pray, I'll invite the men that are serving to come on forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Sovereign God of our Lord Jesus Christ, You forsook the Son on His cross that You might never forsake us for all eternity. Who are we that You are mindful of us? Who are we that You care for us? We were evil rebels, and yet even then, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, You loved us. In this is love, not that we loved You, but that You loved us and sent Your Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. How we rejoice then, 
this afternoon, Father, to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ until He comes. And praise God, He is coming. It is our privilege to receive a token of His body and a reminder of His blood. Thank You, Father, for the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you come forward? God. 
At that last Passover meal on the night before he was crucified, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body. So would you take that little bit of cracker you have now and eat it and proclaim Jesus' body broken for you. Would you bow with me again? Father, we've tasted the bread and been reminded of Jesus' body that was broken on that cross, but thank you that there's a cup that's coming. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no dealing with sin. Thank you that the precious blood of your Son was shed on the cross. And to that now we turn our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.
crushed to death. Do you believe those words this afternoon? At that same meal, Jesus also took a cup. And when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So until that day, would you take this little cup of juice and drink it now 
and proclaim Jesus' blood shed for you. Now, brothers and sisters, the benediction is not mine to give, so that's not what I'm doing right now. But I can't help but take us to words in Nehemiah chapter 8. When the people of God were confronted with their sin in the words of the law, we've been confronted with our sin in the cross of Jesus Christ. And they began to grieve. And Ezra the priest said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. Let's all stand together. And we're going to sing, Christ, we, all, we do all adore thee. Uh, we're going to sing it first, uh, since may, uh, we assume some of you guys don't know the song. But we'll sing it all together the second time. Christ we do all adore Thee and we do praise Thee forever Christ we do all adore Thee and we do praise
Well, PJ was trying to take my part, but here we come. Receive now a blessing in the name of God for the week, the year ahead. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, at this point, we usually say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'll say it again. That is your charge. Happy Good Friday.